0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Dad the Man podcast, the only show specifically designed to help you love and lead your family from the front, from a place of opportunity and excitement, fulfillment and passion, and all at the same time, still pursuing your own personal, professional goals as well. That's a lot to handle, but that's the problem that we're here to solve. That's the balance that we're here to strike. I want to thank you so much for tuning in today. My name is Brendan Ball, and I am your host. Whether you have been here every step along the way, or if today's your first time tuning in, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for lending your time, your attention to this show, to our mission, I can't thank you enough for the support. You could be spending your time doing literally anything else, but you've chosen to tune in today. And that's something that I take very seriously. I receive your time and attention as a gift and my goal is to steward that very well and to give you the best return on that time and attention that I possibly can. So thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So before I introduce today's guest and we get into it, I want to first do a quick plug for our Dad the Man Facebook group. You can find this free group on Facebook. Go to the group section, search for dad, the man, and it will pop up. You will find us. You can also go to the link in the show notes, just click on it. It'll take you right there. You know, as men, husbands and fathers, we face a unique set of circumstances, challenges, obstacles, but the cool thing is that as men, husbands and fathers, we face a lot of the same obstacles, challenges, circumstances. So why try to do it alone? There's no sense in trying to recreate the wheel. There's no sense in trying to do this alone. We've created this Facebook group so that we can go through so many of these same cir- circumstances and obstacles and challenges. We can go through it together. You can have access to people who have just gone through what you've gone through. Or maybe there's someone in there who needs help and you can help them. That's what we've created this group We're all going through the same things together, so don't go at it alone. Come join us in the group. It's totally free. No excuse not to join. I want to see you in there soon. So today's guest is none other than Dr. Michael Gervais. So Dr. Gervais is a high-performance psychologist working in the trenches of high-stakes environments with some of the best in the world, training the mindset, skills, and practices that are essential to pursuing and revealing one's potential. He played a pivotal role in the Seattle Seahawks' 2014 Super Bowl victory. His clients include world record holders, Olympians, internationally acclaimed artists and musicians, MVPs from every major sport, and Fortune 100 CEOs. A published peer-reviewed author and recognized speaker on Optimum Human Performance, Dr. Gervais has been featured by... NBC, ABC, Fox, CNN, ESPN, NFL Network, Red Bull TV, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Outside Magazine, Wired, ESPN Magazine, and many more. He is the host of the Finding Mastery podcast, which is a staple show for me personally. That is a really great podcast. I highly recommend that for anyone and everyone. You know, every once in a while, you meet somebody who is just different. You know, they they vibrate at a higher level and you know it right away when you meet them. You know, right when you meet them, they have this special gift and you, you can feel it. And Dr. Gervais is one of those guys. After digging into Michael's work, I became infatuated with what he has put together, his body of work over the course of his career, his life story. And I was so, so, so excited for this conversation. And after speaking to him, totally blown away. Dr. Michael Gervais is the real deal. He is as advertised. He's brilliant and thoughtful, and he has an amazing gift of deducing his life's work into simple, actionable steps for anyone to understand and implement. Above it all, he is an incredible man, husband, and father, and it was an honor to host him on the show. So here's my conversation with the Michael Gervais. Guys, it is not every day that you get to sit down and have a conversation with somebody who is world-class, truly the best in the world at what they do. Today just so happens to be one of those days for me. I'm very excited. It is both an honor and a privilege to welcome today's guest, world-renowned performance psychologist, the one and only Dr. Michael Gervais.
1: Welcome to the Dad of the Man podcast. Brendan, I was wondering who is going to join us. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the kind intro. That is uh, warmly felt. Thank you.
0: Well, I'm super excited to have you here. So thank you for making some time. So to, to wade into this thing, um, big topic, fatherhood, marriage, there's something we'll get pretty deep in today's conversation. I like to start going back to the beginning. So if you don't mind, can you give us a little bit of an overview of your childhood, your upbringing, who you were as a kid, what you were into, all those kinds of things about your childhood?
1: First, I love your mission. Like, I love what you're doing. So that part's cool. And I don't, um, I know you want some context. So I'm going to try to be brief and hit the high notes, but help me wherever you want to go to unpack more of what you're looking for, for some context, some historical context. So I grew up, um, my parents kind of dropped out. So this was in the seventies and they wanted to go build a family. And so they found a piece of property on a farm in Virginia and uh, dirt roads, no lights, you know, like it was out there Mm -hmm. and I didn't know any better. I was just a little grown, you know, like a couple years old. And so we grew up um, in a very, very kind of rural environment where I needed to figure out quickly how this laissez-faire parenting style, which, you know, it's a technical term, but it really just means like hands off Mm -hmm. this laissez-faire parenting approach Allowed me to figure out the rules of the world and not the rules of people. And the rules of the world really, at that age, meant the rules of nature because of where I was geographically dropped into. And so it was like rivers move fast, you know? And like you get caught in one of those things and you don't know how to swim very well, that could be bad. And when it gets dark out, I mean, this is how my parents did it. You know, like when it gets dark out um and you're not home, like that could be pretty scary. And so it was very much, learn by natural consequences. And um, if you climb really high and a branch breaks, like it hurts when you fall. And so, but also like this strong encouragement to keep exploring, keep figuring out, yeah, you can go a little further. You can go a little further, you know, when they happen to be there. Mm -hmm. And so when I would get hurt, it was always like, um, yeah, that happens. Yeah. Okay. We'll go fix that up. No worries. And so there was that type of, parenting, which was, um, strong moral base, definitely hands-off, which that, that can be a real risk in and of itself that parents that are hands-off in that way, loving, kind, very interested in their lifestyle, um, alcohol and drugs were involved for them. And, but they kept that from me. So I didn't know that alcohol and drugs were part of it. Like I'm a little kid. Like, I don't know, but when you're, when you grow up in that environment, you end up having, um, a spidey sense for when things are different because people act differently when you know they're drunk or drugged and so you end up kind of figuring out like oh there's different there's there's like a different kind of way for me to respond and so that was kind of the origins and listen I I am honest because I value honesty and never at the cost of wanting to embarrass or hurt my parents. You know, they're still alive and I love them and they're they're awesome. And um that was just my experience growing up and I don't know I don't know how if they were in this conversation they might say what? You know, like what do you <laughs> mean you know, so but that was my experience growing up. And um they definitely uh I felt supported and um the challenge was left to mother nature.
0: When did you realize that they were that alcohol and drugs were in play? How old were you when that became you were aware of that.
1: That was like high school is when I started to sort it out. Like, Oh, that's what this is because it was, it was kept like, there was no drugs or alcohol used in front of me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and it was mostly alcohol. And so it was the behaviors that I was attuned to and the difference in behaviors as, as opposed to like, Oh, I see that somebody's drunk passed out. It wasn't like that. It was just a little more moody, Um, maybe a little happier, maybe a little uh, more um, like a quicker fuse. Mm -hmm. And so it's picking up like the clues like, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. What is this? Okay. And then so it was like high school when I was like, oh, this is what this is. (laughs) Yeah. You know, okay. So I got it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's a, that's a pivotal age to pick up on that. How did you respond to that? Did that push you towards it, push you away from it? Were you just kind of agnostic to
1: it? my favorite uncle on my dad's side, uh, died really early because of drugs. And, um, so yeah, I mean, he was my favorite uncle and I knew he had a drug problem
0: Yeah,
1: and his, his drug of choice. Um, actually I don't know the drug of choice. I know it was like a lot of cocaine involved, but, um, his, I don't know exactly kind of, it was the alcohol, cocaine, probably was the, the, the best mix. But that being said, um, I had attached at a young age, like this really fun, gregarious, um, passionate, fiery, you know, alive human mm-hmm. that saw me, mm-hmm. that he died because of drugs. So I, early I was like, no, I'm not doing drugs then. Like yeah, that, that's, this sucks. And so I, it didn't push me towards, it pushed me away from drugs. And then my other, my other dad, my dad's other brother ended up having a real drug problem as well um, we lost him to suicide. And so that was when I was older, but when I was younger, he had a tragic accident where he was driving drunk and killed his best friend. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's heavy, heavy things to like even be talking about right now, but they were formative for me. Mm -hmm. They were shaping of me. Um, and so too on the other side, um, so I didn't really, I experimented in high school, but I, like, I didn't, I wasn't one of those kids, you know? Yeah. And so by any means, I was like, no, this is not, there's something in my blood that does not, you know, doesn't work well with these things. And yeah. so I knew that, I knew the, the science of genetic um, and addiction, genetics and addiction. So I understood that at a young age, but I was gonna say that the other side, Brennan, was that um, like, there was this fun environment that I, I lived in as well. So it was mother nature, natural consequences. There was a lot of fun. I had to be on my toes. And I, at the same time, I knew that drugs and alcohol were not a good mix.
0: Yeah. Natural consequences. I kind of want to dive right, right into that. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm actually teaching um, and parenting in the same respect. So I'd love to talk about it, which is, I didn't understand stick and ball sport when I was younger, well, I I was exposed to some, like there was a kind of local, if you will, like we had to drive 45 minutes to get to a soccer field, but there was a kind of local soccer field. And I was part of that little, you know, 12 kids or 15 kids that would play, you know, on a team. And, um, but I didn't understand these adults yelling at kids with these artificial rules, like stay in this line. Why would I need to stay in here? Like I got full control and he's chasing me and like, it's fine. You know, and like, I didn't get the adult screaming at kids with these artificial man-made rules. And so I was come to look back. I was way more attracted to action sports. So that's usually attuned to, um, there's no coaching. There's some sort of risk involved and mother nature was involved in the ones that I was attracted to. So there's natural consequences that happen when you hesitate. There's natural consequences when you don't have the skill and you overestimate your skill. You know, so you, there's a tuning fork that takes place when there's natural consequences that are real. And that tuning fork ended up being so foundational for me from a young age. And I encourage all parents to kind of put the Zamboni back in the garage you know, the smoothing, the smoothing out of the ice for their children and, yep. you know, kind of park the helicopter for a bit and, you know, to encourage climbing trees and figuring out like there's a case to be made for broken bones. And I don't say that callously. I say that like because that's what it takes to be able to really understand this tuning fork between what are the demands of the environment and what are my internal skills. And when that is off, you will never reach your potential. When that is off, you will overestimate your skills and abilities, which at some cases can be good, Mm -hmm. but that's not the path of mastery. And, And when it goes the other direction, when you underestimate your skills and overestimate real consequences, what ends up happening for the majority of people is that we play it safe and we play it small and we tighten up when quote unquote, the lights come on. And the lights are not really the lights that, you know, stadium lights, it's more like people's eye gaze is the, the, you know, the kind of the threatening thing of our modern life.
0: Yeah. So like you said, there's, there's some risk involved with, I guess, letting kids get out there. Maybe it's broken bones. Maybe as they get older, it's different things like in your own world with, with your son, how have you, I guess, navigated letting them get up to that line of like, okay, now I'm going to get out of that comfort zone where there could be a consequence where an arm could break, where something could happen. How do you kind of help them navigate that without letting them get, I guess, too out there, to overexpose where consequences could be more severe or dramatic?
1: Well, that's the right question. You're asking the exact right question. And this is where wisdom hopefully pays dividends is to be able to help them match, you know, the, the risk, mm-hmm. you know, to help them understand. And there's some responsibility from the adults in the room to be able to say, listen, if you're going to play on a train track, that's really dangerous. You know, like it's a fatal consequence. Why don't we play over here, you know, wherever over here is, but call that the tree, you know, and the tree is only eight feet tall. And so if you're to slip and fall and kind of get your four fingers on a branch, you're only about a four feet drop or, you know, something like that. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's that type of nudging towards that, I think is where we, as parents can do better. And, um, it's not an abdication like, Hey, go play and do whatever you want. Like the world is dangerous and there are dangerous people in the world. And it was different. I I don't know how old you are, Brandon, but you know, I was born in the seventies. And so like, it just feels like it's very different. I live in a city, I grew up in a farm. So Mm -hmm. my frames of reference are different. So I would say that for most adults. I think that we can do a pretty good job helping our kids take more risk. That would be a basic blanket statement and people saying, yeah, no kidding. But
0: yeah, that's something I've become way more aware of recently because I I felt myself starting to slip into that, I guess that position, where as a parent, you watch your kids and you know, they're about to do something that's probably going to hurt them a little, you know, and you're like, you have the natural inclination of like, don't do that. I know how this is going to play out. Like, but I've found that in doing that, like to your say, like what you're saying, I'm robbing them of the learning experience that can happen. Like my son the other day, he's three. And then we have a little nursery set up. We're trying to grow our family right now through adoption. So we're ready. So we've got like a little crib set up and a little mattress on the ground for the parents to sleep on if we need to, right? But he's three and he's a little wild man. So he wants to climb up on the crib and he wants to jump across the, you know, it's probably two, three feet, like the floor space over to the mattress. And my first reaction is, Buddy, you're not going to make it. <laughs> like, you're going to bump your head. It's going to happen. But I had to have that moment of reflection to like stop my own reflex to protect my own emotional damage that I was going to feel by watching him bump his head. And sure enough, he jumped. He bumped his head, but then he calibrated, which was really cool to see him go do it again and then figure out how to make the jump better the next time. Yeah. And that was just, it's just like it. It made me think like, how often am I really stunting their growth? So now I'm like hyperware, maybe going too far the other way. Yeah, right. Yeah. Trying to find the balance.
1: I learned a good um kind of half sentence to say to kids. This was actually from my son's preschool teacher. And so they were they very much had a so there's formal instruction and guided discovery are two basic philosophies for learning. And so what I was talking about earlier was guided discovery. And then formal instruction is um you know, let's take a basketball player, like tuck your elbow and then snap your wrist and then do that a thousand times. And that kid will get better fast guided discovery. It's like, well, maybe I'm going to keep my elbows out. Maybe I'm going to do it with two hands. Maybe I'm going to do it with one. I'm going to, I'm going to sort it out. But what, and that end up, that kid ends up figuring out, it takes a little bit longer, but now they have a much wider range. Mm -hmm. And so there's a bigger freedom in it. So they, that, that philosophy is up for debate. You know, and what you're engaging in is guided discovery. Let them figure it out. And here's a half sentence that maybe you can use: is that the inclination is to say, "Oh, don't do that," you know, like, and then the kids' eyes get big, like, what, what, you know, oh, "Okay." <laughs> yeah. But what we can do is a sentence something like, "That looks really far," hmm. and so it's helping with the approximation. It's helping yep. with the that, um, tuning fork that I was talking about. Yeah. It's an input to their
0: own evaluation.
1: Yeah. Right. That looks really far or that looks really heavy, you know, and instead of like, if you drop that big bucket, you could cut your foot, you know, it's like, (laughs) that looks really heavy. So it's, it's helping with the tuning fork and then not to belabor this too much, but, you know, parenting is really important to both of us is that, um, maybe you want to lay kind of under the bed, you know, like on the edge of the bed, if he's trying to jump to the bed, so you know, like he's still gonna go for it, but yeah, that's a little bit of a cushion, you know, like yeah. And I, I know you know that's one of the statistics is the coffee table is where most injuries happen for kids, you know, mm-hmm. like <laughs> guarantee indoor, indoor <laughs> dangers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so
0: this is interesting to me because I, I have two two boys, they're five and three. One, the the one I was just telling you about, he fits that second born nature. So like he wants to learn on his own and it is no problem to let him go and explore. And like his tuning fork is on. He don't want to be told how to do anything. My other son, my older son, he really wants to be taught how to do everything. And he's, he's a talented kid, really smart kid, but he's risk averse. So I'm constantly trying to push him into a position, give him the confidence, equip him with whatever he needs to not watch from a distance to step into play, to put himself out there a little bit. And I've found that to be quite the challenge. So I I would love to, I mean, just personally, I'll ask you that how you might advise me to maybe help him to step into taking more, more, more of a risk so that he can grow on his own.
1: And again, he's three, he's five, he's five, three and five. Okay. So let me go back to five. The, yeah, I think um, you're probably going to need to do some, um, like stepwise approaching if he's already. So some people come into the world genetically unique. Mm-hmm. And if you just think of a very simple framework called cortical arousal. And so if you think about your brain and your brain stem and your spinal cord, if that, if you come into the world and there's a lot of activity in that, and then you put somebody on the edge of a cliff, it's like it just spills over. There's just too much activity to manage. It does not feel great. But if you take somebody with low activity and I'm not talking about intelligence, I'm, I'm just talking about like nerve activity, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And you put that person at the edge of the cliff, they go, Oh, this feels fun. Mm-hmm. You put in kind of quote unquote average activity, cortical arousal activity, uh, uh brain and brainstem and, and spinal cord on the, on the edge of the cliff and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. I, don't, I don't know, this this is kind of good, but I don't, I don't know. So maybe your son just has a, a high cortical arousal. There's mm-hmm. a unique kind of genetic predisposition that is kind of spilling him that way. And yep. so helping him in non-intense environments, know how to downregulate and speak to himself. Gotcha. So just like we were gonna practice, I don't know, in any elite in sport, any elite sport environment, we would start in a calm environment, we'd move up to something a little more stressful, even more stressful, and before you know it, it's like the most intense, hopefully more intense even than, than game days. Mm-hmm. And so you wanna start there. And so down-regulation strategies like breathing, mm-hmm. um, five-year-old, definitely a great time to do it. When my son was five, it was right before bed, we'd lay on the bed, i put a um, stuffed animal on his, um, just above his, below his, um, chest muscles and above his solar plex, like right about the solar plex, mm-hmm. and just put it there and say, okay, let's, let's watch it. Let's count how many times and how slow we can get the, um, the elephant or whatever it was at that time to, to rise and fall. Mm-hmm. And then, so it's a, it's a simple little focus and a simple little breathing strategy. Yep. And I do it with them, you know, and I put one yeah. on my stuff too. You know, right. And mm-hmm. so, sounds silly, but that's a down regulation strategy so that when he needs it later, when he's, you know, at the edge of whatever cliff he feels like you're presenting to him or he's in that he's got a couple skills and you can be like, Hey, remember the elephant, like breathe like the elephant, like, or whatever it might be. And he's, and so you give him some skills ahead of time.
0: Gotcha. So it's more of a, more of the idea of, I guess, helping him trying to think of the right word, just down regulate ahead of time so that he has a little capacity when that's it. Quote unquote shit hits the fan. That's he's exactly. Late, it. He, he's got space and he's got tools to then regulate from there. That's exactly it.
1: And then here's another fun game. And then, and then be very, um, specific about creating those stepwise approaches, right? So instead of putting him on a five foot gap to jump from, you know, the crib to the bed or whatever, like put a two foot gap. Yeah, and then yeah. he gets up there and, and love it. If he gets up there and gets back down, yep. right? Like, yeah, look, you know how to trust yourself. Yep. So either way, it's a win. Okay. Right. Like you, you're figuring it out. You know how to trust yourself. Nice job. Hey, you want to go, you know, let's go outside and do whatever, you know? And then, and then next time and go say, Hey, we're going to do that again. Like, you know, and then next time he goes up there and he's, and he shakes and he stands there a little bit more. Look at you. I see you working. Yeah. Okay. Good. You ready to get down? Yeah, "Yeah, dad, I'm ready to get down. Awesome. You know, so it's a stepwise approach. So it's not like a on or off button of I did it or I failed right? So it's a stepwise gotcha. approach that way. And then you, and then once he gets up and you can jump at two feet, then he gets up and jumps, you kind of move it back to three feet. Da, 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 da. So it's like being really smart about that. If he is one of those humans that has high cortical arousal, that's a yeah. great way to do it.
0: That makes a lot of sense that yeah. my son, I would say definitely falls into, into that bucket. So I'll, I'll be still, I'll be still some
1: of these techniques. Yeah. 100%. So be really stoked on whatever he does. And yeah. then So here's a fun little takeaway is that maybe one day you take your kids, um, snow Mm skiing, you know, and the mistake the adults make is one more run. You know, Mm -hmm. let me get my money's worth. Like they'll get one more turn, they'll get a couple more turns. We'll get one more run. They're going to get better. We're already here. We're kind of in a groove and then they fall apart and melt. Right. And then they they're leaving the mountain like that, that was too much. So pull them off the mountain early right? Two runs before your intuition is up. And so you pull them off the mountain early and they're like, dad, I want more. So they leave wanting more. And you're like, oh yeah, you don't even know, son, but we're winning right now. You know, right? <laughs> like we are totally winning. <laughs> so anyways, that, that's a nice little way to think about um, supporting in the right direction, challenging yeah. in the right direction, and then using your lever as well.
0: That's convicting. I'm thinking, I mean, I'm flashing back to last time we were at the ball ballpark and I'm throwing you know, soft toss underhand baseballs too. And I'm like, come on, buddy, one more bucket. We only hit one out of five in the last one. And I'm like kicking myself down. I'm like, dang it. That's what, and of course we leave. And he's like, I'm good on baseball for a while. You know, like he's yeah, not right. dying yeah. to go back the next day. Yeah. Uh, and That makes so listen, much sense.
1: I, you and I have made our, our mistakes. And I think that same thing. I, I, I remember young tossing too high of a ball to my son and he caught him, you know, caught one right in the, in the, in the mouth. And for a five-year-old kid, that's like, no one wants that. I don't want that now as a result. And so it caught him too much. And then he's like, you know, and then I could see him next time when high balls were coming up, there's a hesitation. Okay. Like he does need to work through it, but I can also be a little bit smarter with understanding some of the levers. And if we can, let's use some basic brain neuroscience really quickly. Mm -hmm. Emotions, um, help support memory. Okay, So when you're in an environment and you want somebody to remember it, and there's a unique emotion, a high emotion, it could be deep sadness or it could be deep joy, but there's a deep emotion that is taking place. There's a consolidation and a, a, yeah, that's the right word, a consolidation of the memory so that the brain says, oh, this is important. Let's make sure that we don't lose this one. Mm -hmm. So what we can do as adults is we can use that for ourselves, for any habit that we're about to build. Mm -hmm. We can, as small and benign as this might sound, when let's say you want to go for a run, I'm sorry, let's say that you want to build the habit of running and you've designed like, okay, mornings is the right time. And I am a morning person. I'm just kind of, I just need to reorganize, you know, the way that I'm doing my mornings the night before, if you put your shoes out by the front door, sounds super benign, right? But that's part of building a habit, let's say, yep celebrate like a wild person. You just put your shoes down. That's all you've done. It's 10 o'clock at night and you're going to run at seven in the morning or six in the morning, celebrate like a wild person there, because now you're using good neuroscience, which is, Oh, big emotion, big memory. And then that starts to create a reward circuitry. Like, Oh, this is something that is enjoyable and pleasurable. And you actually didn't do a whole lot of work there. No problems. Okay, so we're just going to kind of create a different type of tripwire for grooving or greasing a groove. So celebrate with your kids in wild ways as well for the ways that you want them um, to feel about doing something. And so, and I'm not saying being like over the top, like, oh my God, there's. You know, fizz in this lemonade—it's amazing. You know, like actually, my son loves lemonade, but I don't love that he loves lemonade. But like, there's fizz in it. Oh, this is the world is great. Like, it's—I'm not saying be stupid like that. I'm just saying pick your spots. It sounds like yeah, find your ways to really celebrate to help their brain attune. Like, this is actually really cool. Yeah. Yeah. That,
0: That helps. That helps a lot. So really, really calling out, helping them call out their emotions in the areas that we want to help them to develop. That's, that's that's extremely helpful. Okay. So a little bit of a delineation, but I think it's on the same path. So I'm just imagining, you know, my son playing sports and he's like, he likes baseball. He wants to play baseball, right? Like he, he's all about it. But when we get to the game, he, he, like, he gets a little bit of like a performance anxiety. So it's, I think it's different than not necessarily wanting to take a risk, but there's something about the performance of, hey, all eyes are on him that he steps up and he's like, I don't think I want to play anymore. Mm. How do we help that kid?
1: Okay. Well, I would do a couple of things. I would go back to more of the, the practice environments and help in those environments, give them better tools. Here's one. So let's work backwards. Mm-hmm. If I'm listening to you, you're saying he's looking out to the audience, to the fans, to the parents, right? In mm-hmm. the, in the, in the metal benches, right? And he's like uh, wooden benches. He's like, oh, okay. Like they're looking at me. There's some sort of evaluation that's taking place and that feels like it's too much. Yep. So that is um, actually relatively an easy fix because it is so common. We understand this pretty well. So I would do in, by the way, this is one of the great human constrictors. This is one of the great culprits to human potential is this fear of what other people might be thinking of me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so go, go, go back to the practice environment and I would not make a big deal about this, but go back to the in- practice environment and now use some good science to put him in control, rather than people's opinions being the powerful controller. Hmm. So, what does that mean? Small things like a five-year-old. You could probably do two, maybe three. So, with pro athletes, I would do three, three goals that are 100% under your control, and we would do it every day. We do it in practice and games, so nothing changes. And so maybe start with one, one goal today for practice. That's 100% under your control. And then I don't know what is penmanship or like if writing is hard or if it's a, it's something you're working on at yeah. all, or you can just say it to you and then, and then have a conversation about that. So you're going to start to now teach him more than he's going to be able to know what they are, mm-hmm. but you have that conversation and you teach him about focusing and you're not gonna use this word, but you'll use the word focusing on what's in your control, but you won't use the word mastering because it's too young. But that is that would be an essential uh, conversation. So that's a super simple one. And then the second would be like a little, the beginnings of a little bit of a routine. Mm -hmm. So help him know, help him do one or two things before he goes up to bat and then give him one thing to focus on. Okay, so he does a waggle, a breath, you know, whatever he does, you know, yeah. like, and, but, and you say all of that is so that you're going to pick up, is, is he still on a, there's no pitcher at five-year-olds, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Over, over coach pitch, coach pitch. Yeah. yeah. So then your job is to pick up like the ball as soon as it leaves the coach's hands. That's it. Just focus on that. Yep. And so you're, so then that's taking at any point in time, you can focus internally or externally. Right. And so if you're focusing internally, it becomes almost like a claustrophobic experience. It's, it, it's not the right place to place focus during a performance, but there is a time for it. So the internal is more like for a quick evaluation, how am I doing in here? Is there some adjustments? Breathing and self-talk are the big tools. And then the second is you wanna drive all of your attention external. And so if you can have him do a couple of things on a pre-performance routine that are kind of nice and fun and chill and whatever, and then have him focus all of his attention on one thing, and then have them practice that, not just game days, but actually during practice, that would be a, a pretty thoughtful approach on those two. Okay. Gotcha, man.
0: This is amazing. Gotcha. I've got some real takeaways yeah. here already. Just, I mean, selfishly, this is going to help me a lot. Oh, this good. is incredible.
1: Yeah, I, listen, I wish I had these when I was a kid. You know, that's actually what got me in this field of sports psychology and performance psychology is like, tell us about it. I was a mess. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> was a mess. I had what your son had at 15. And so there's two types of surfing that was like, that was the sport that I was most attracted to free surfing and competitive surfing. And so in free surfing, there's a hardcore approach, you know, a culture to that type of surfing. And the motto was like, be about it. Don't talk about it. And so just put yourself in the heaviest situation. So you experience it, the deepest part of the wave, the most critical part of the wave and never ask, did you see that? Never, never talk about it, but just be about it. Yeah, and that was awesome, right? Like, like that's great. And I, but I also wanted to know what people thought. So, like, <laughs> you know, so there was always a little conflict there. But it was, there was a freedom in there; just go do it. And then when I would try to go to the dark side, to the competitive, you know, like sponsored judges, you know, people on the beach watching. When I would try to go do that side of it. Mm-hmm. I was a disaster. Mm-hmm. It felt like I couldn't even surf. Like I was really? in a different body. And I didn't realize what was happening, but it, it was as if I lost access to all of my skills because people were judging me. I didn't know that until later. But what ended up happening is that I no longer could do what I could do the day before. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that changed was the setting and that setting changed my mind so i let my external environment dictate and determine my internal environment and so that was such a painful experience it set me down this path like what is going on like what is this thing of the mind and why is mine like not able to like adapt in this way and so it set me down this path where i really just wanted to understand how how the mind works, and come to find out, um, we weren't taught this. We, we right. most people are not taught how to work with their mind, and so it almost feels like there's tip jams everywhere I go because, like, it's so many people right now. Yeah, not even right now, but so many people want to be better. They want to feel more at home within themselves. Mm-hmm. They know that there's more to go. There's more to grow. There's more to give. There's like higher levels of performance. There's deeper levels of joy. Like they, we know that and we've left our minds up to almost like this taboo black hole where we don't talk about it. You're supposed to know how to focus and be calm and confident. Wait, those are skills. Those are as mechanical as, you know, squats and deadlifts and bicep curls and learning how to type faster or to write creatively. They're skills that you can practice. And, um, so that anyways, that's what led me down the path as I was a disaster.
0: When did you figure out that like, man, I could do this for a career and I'm going to do this as a career. Like when, when did that switch flip for you where you're like, okay, this
1: is, this is the path I'm going down. So I, I was the first person to attempt college in my family. Mm-hmm. And, um, I naturally enjoyed, I was attracted to the invisible. Like there was three ways that I knew I could. Like if there was a degree um, pathway, it would either be psychology, philosophy, or theology. You know, so thinking about the spiritual frameworks, thinking about philosophical frameworks or psychological frameworks. And so I chose psychology because it felt a little bit more practical. And I minored in philosophy, but like my major in undergrad was in psychology. And then after that, my mentor was like, so what are you going to do now? I was like, I don't know. He goes, well, do you, you, you seem to like psychology. And I was like, yeah. And he said, well, you have to keep going. Like there's no job in psychology unless, you know, there's, there's more education behind it. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So I kept going and then I studied um, I followed the traditional psychology route and it's the, the study of clinical psychology or disorders, if you will of the mind. And I dropped out after two semesters. I was like, I can't do this. I, I can't just be saturated with the, the, the most painful experience, the most disordered way of using the mind. And so that same mentor was like, okay, um, you know, there is this kind of new field called sports psychology. I said, what? Yeah. you go psychology of sport. What? <laughs> he goes, yeah, you're actually studying like the excellence of the human psychology. And I said, like, Oh my God, let me try. Let me, let me, let me understand this. So then as I started to um, investigate more, I found a, a master's program that, was a really nice fit. And that professor was very clear. The dean of that school was very clear. Like, hey, listen, there's the the sport or I'm sorry, the the science is not mature enough. The field is not mature enough. So you're going to need to probably have a PhD if you want to do this and, you know, get good at research or maybe you're a professor and maybe moonlighting. Like there's a little bit of moonlighting. And I was like, no, no, no. There's people need that. I needed this. Like, I know there's more people like me out there. So I always had that in the back of my mind, but everybody, even all the way through my PhD program were like, listen, uh, fields, the field's not there yet. Learn how to be, you know, good at research and a professor at a university. Some like it's, I was like, no, 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 there's something here. And so Did that that's, pissed you off along the way. Yeah, it was, you can hear it, right. There's that off access kind of counterculture way about me that I was like, well then if the world's zigging I think I know how to zag
0: like, yeah. like, let me let me
1: sort that out and that's the free surfing skill right 100% yeah. and, and it was great and it, you know I just wanted to there was another important moment where one of my parents friends who was a full-on hippie socialist um artist that took his art, he ended up suing Nixon, like, like the president, like he was way out there. And so there's this one, and he was uh, come to find out, like, um, I didn't know this until he passed away. He was a full cross dresser. Like he had this, like just beautiful way about pushing on authenticity and the edges. And like, he just did it his way. And I've got, his name is Larry Stifel, and I have got so much respect for him. He had one conversation with me when I was, Uh, Right about that undergraduate, graduate age. And he said, so Mike, what are you going to do? And so I say socialist lightly, right? But he, so he was a deep artist. If you've ever seen a guitar that has beautiful inlay on it, like um, Mother Pearl inlay on it. If you look at like Bob Dylan's early guitars, he was doing them. If you look at like those, that type of intense artist that uh, was world respected, And then he turned that into a real business where he had machines that were taking his designs and then scaling them. And he had two other partners and they were not quite as skilled, but they were good partners to make something work. And he's like, yeah, so I'm all these contracts I have with Bob Dylan and, and Led Zeppelin and, and, and he goes, listen, it's the three of ours. So he split all of his money right down the road the whole time. And he's like, what do I need all this money for? And it, it, it's like, He was radical and I loved every part of this that I'm telling you, I'm I'm remembering him. But he had this moment where it was in um, my family's uh, kitchen. He says, Michael, what do you wanna do with your life? I said, I don't know, but I wanna make a lot of money. And he said, really? I go, yeah. And I'm looking at a very successful entrepreneur and I thought that that was kind of like, he was gonna gonna help me here. And he goes, like he pauses and he goes, boy, I'm gonna wish you well. And I thought, well, that's not what I thought. Like I didn't, I didn't understand where he was coming from. That he was working from a deep philosophy. And um, my parents came back around. That's like, hey, what did you say to Larry? And I said, well, he asked me what I want to do, and I just said, you know. And and he said, yeah, he's really concerned for you. And that's all they said. And I, so I was like, what? And so as I put it together later, I didn't have a soul. I didn't. I, sorry. I have a soul and I had a soul then I didn't have soul in my thinking and feeling about my future. I didn't have a spirit. I didn't have, I didn't have humanity in it. And so I didn't have any answers from that conversation, but this person that I respected and regarded in some respects about like his way, not that he was successful in business, but the way he carried himself and the way he would laugh. And I thought, I got to figure out what he was so concerned about. So, so then it just was apparent at some point in my life, like, no, it's whatever you do, be, be artful about it and understand the nuances of the craft so that you can express it in ways that is authentic to you. And if you're still trying to figure out how to, do basic brushstrokes. It's it's hard to be artistic in anything. So understand and have full command of the thing that you love. That's what I took from Larry Stifle. And so um, he's no longer with us, but um, what an important conversation with no answers that yeah. that held. And it was really the relationship, Brendan, then it was what was said and unsaid. So, yeah, so yeah. he
0: kind of, I guess he in a way helped you or gave you the permission to really light the fire beneath yourself to allow you to then go pursue this, this field of psychology of like, Hey, I've got this thing. I know other people need this help that I can give them. And then you then had permission to go explore it with a passion, with a different element of, I guess, an artful approach.
1: It was that it was the latter. It it wasn't like, like permission, but it was like, wait, what are you doing with your life? He didn't say that, but it was the mm-hmm. concern he had, yeah. you know? So like, if you're going to do something, like if I could make up what he was going to say, which I wish I had another chance to have this conversation with him, is um, if, if I think what he might say, if you were to put words to it is like, <laughs> whatever you're going to do, don't fucking chase money. Come on, like go deeper, just might like, go deeper, like really feel your way through life and feel it and express from there. And if the tools that you want to use are, is a science of psychology, feel your way through this, like be connected at a human level to whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so that was it. It wasn't like permission and go after this thing. It was just whatever you're going to do. I hope it's not about money. Yeah.
0: Making it, making it about more than money. That's, that's important. That's, that's significant. It was a good lesson
1: for a young, scrappy little, you know, full of piss and vinegar kid. You know?
0: I think everybody's been there though. It's like, yeah. I just, you know, that's what drive. I mean, at the end of the day, realistically, that's what drives so many of our decisions. I mean, I know that it, I mean, it's driven a whole bunch of mine. I mean, like hand raised. That's, what, a, I mean, that's a what, what's driving your decisions?
1: What's driving your decisions? Making money. Making money. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah I oh and it's yeah, a well, and
0: it's complicated when you think of, and I got a mortgage, I got bills, and then it's like, okay, well, I kind of want to go on this other different path now how do we how do we go there? And I think that's where a lot of people i I find myself there all the time, and I'm kind of somewhere between both mountains as we speak. and I think a lot of our listeners are too I, I'd love to hear you maybe, I don't know, give some wisdom or some guidance for somebody who maybe is on that path where they said, hey, I took like i I have gone the route. I've been responsible in providing for my family, paying the bills, but there's this other endeavor that is where my, where my heart is calling me and it's not going to be profitable today, but I want to move that direction. You see what I'm saying?
1: Uh, yeah, I do. And maybe I can add a little bit of context, not try to give a solution, you know, to, to that dilemma. Cause that's a real dilemma it, and it's an important one to sort out. So here's, here's the context is that probably since the industrial revolution, we started to notice that um, there's a system at play and the system values productivity more than humanity. So show up, do your work and do it better and faster. And if you, we fast forward to what's happened over the last couple of years, and I'm going to step over a lot of really important, you know, phases and, and time mark moments in life but what has happened is we're experiencing right now people at the when the pandemic hit, the global pandemic they're like'm not doing it like that anymore. like I am not sacrificing productivity the altar of productivity I'm not sacrificing my well-being I'm not sacrificing the relationship with my kids anymore the relationship with the people that I took a, a public you know oath in front of a spiritual, Framework to say, yeah, I'm doing love with you, intimate love with you in this way. And so, like, people just basically waved their hands and said, We're doing it differently. I'm doing it differently. Mm -hmm. And so, there's this rewriting of a contract between employer and employee. Mm -hmm. And and so, then employees had all of this power. I'm going to live here. um, I'm going to make the same amount of money. And I'm not going to, I'm going to actually downgrade kind of my expenses or like those issues a radical shift that took place. Mm-hmm. It's starting to now go back. So the pendulum is swimming, swinging back and there's a recontracting that's taking place between um, enterprise companies and employees. And so that recontracting is like, okay, the economy's constricting just a bit. There is, um, there's some real challenges in our world. How are we going to do this? Mm-hmm. You know, and the thought is hybrid or full in office or full remote, like, how are we going to do this? But there's a recontracting that's taking place. So I share that as some context because it it is something that most people are working through right now. Is my purpose in life and my the way that I spend most of my time, are they lining up? Mm-hmm. And I think the wrong question is about passion. The right question is about purpose. And the, the old conversation about passion is find out what you're passionate about and choose that as your way of living. Choose that as like something you can do to make money. I find that to be so ass backwards. The, the, what I would suggest, if we're gonna carry this passion thread just a little further, is figure out what passion feels like Understand how you are responsible to light passion within you and take passion into every room, every conversation, every place that you are. And so live with passion everywhere you go. Okay, that's actually doable. That is totally doable. It It's on... The mistake is i'm only going to be passionate when i'm playing the guitar and i need to figure out how to go get a hat and put it on the curb and like make a little side hustle and then one day maybe i'll get a small stage and another day i'll get a bigger stage and then i can quit this shitty job i have and then i'm going to be happy no fucking way that's not how this works that can work some ways for some people i'm not saying like there's almost 7 billion people there's lots of ways to do things My thought is to figure out how I can live with passion in any environment, any condition that I'm in. Authenticity, passion, you know, have that kind of inner zest for life wherever I am. Okay. That's kind of a commitment and a promise I've made to myself. And then the second is purpose. And so your purpose, if you can figure out, all right, let me, let me take two steps back. I have been fortunate to work at an intimate level with Microsoft's leadership, senior leadership team for the last eight years. And so their CEO is Satya Nadella. And I think he's one of the most significant CEOs on the planet right now. And, you know, they've got a geopolitically, they're one of the more important companies on the planet as well. And they put mindset first as their culture, they put, this idea of having a learning mindset as the base of their culture and then his commitment was so real he's like well how do we do that and then my answer was like well you have to train some basic fundamental mental skills to have a learning invi- to have a learning mindset under stress so let's train those basic capabilities so that you can be a true learner everywhere you go same model if you will on the passion that i just talked about Understand the internal capabilities, so you can live with passion. Understand the internal capabilities. I'm talking about mental skills, so you can, you know, have a, a learning mindset everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then, so what he's done though is he said, "Listen, we're very clear about the purpose of Microsoft to help every organ, to help every individual and organization across the planet achieve more." So then, what he's done to his his employee base, his 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 people is he says. I want you to know your your purpose. And then can can you figure out if Microsoft's purpose can be in service of your purpose? Mm. Think about that dude. No longer is he he is different, okay no longer yeah. is he doing what they did 20 years ago and say, hey, will you be in service of this company's purpose? Will you sacrifice? for the company's purpose and we'll pay you money he's saying listen money's part of the equation yeah okay but can your purpose and our purpose the company's purpose line up and even one step further can can this company of microsoft be in service for your purpose and listen he can't sort that out the senior leadership can't can't sort that out across 200,000 people but just that thought i feel is incredibly empowering for people in your community to say step one what is my purpose in life that's an adult Mm -hmm. that's an adult um decision it takes an adult to be able to sort that out it's like there's a responsibility of an adult to write that down there is a adultness to be able to share that with your intimate loved ones your your tribe your, your 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 few you know that are like you've got their back and they've got your back and you know your purpose and you want to understand their purpose and you want to be in service of their purpose and they am in, in, in you and there's a a thing and then the next layer is that you say wait okay if i'm working for xy company how do how do how do these purposes work together mm-hmm. that is a massive unlock so i don't think we need to go Stop what we're doing before we take an internal inventory about how we're living where we're living mm. because go back to like almost premise number one my external environment changed and because of that my internal environment changed that is that is a a recipe for only I was weak I, I, like i i was I didn't I was mentally strong enough to be able to be me in that environment
0: yeah. You're conditional. You're vulnerable.
1: I was, I love that word. I I was, that's great, dude. I was conditional. That's great. And so, so then the work is to go internal from the inside out, build the psychological skills and the psychological framework so that you can be you in any environment. And then when you layer almost like a parallel path, layer um, purpose with it, those are the most powerful people in the world. They know their yeah. philosophy. They've got internal mental skills to be about it and they are very clear on their purpose. And so um, that is not voodoo, kind of woo woo, like invisible. Like You can write down your philosophy. It's no more complicated than your guiding principles in life. That's what a personal philosophy is. If you work with somebody, like, like this is what I do with people, like we'll help you get there. But you don't have to do it with me you can do it with there's lots of people or you can just listen right now and go what is my personal philosophy can you give well, us yours yeah i absolutely give you mine and I'll, and and as a fun little game um maybe you can maybe you can share yours like if you haven't done yours but like maybe hit me on social like what yours is maybe you already yeah. have fun it and that would be fun too but like without too much work we could guess what gandhi's was We could probably guess what Mother Teresa's was. We could probably guess what Jesus's was, what Buddha's was, Confucius, Dr. King, Malcolm X. Like we could probably guess what their philosophies were, right? In one or two words, because they were so clear about what mattered to them. And their purpose was in service of that philosophy, that life philosophy, whether that be love or kindness or um, fill in the blanks, right? And so why not you? Why not? Why not me? Why not you have that same type of clarity, and then backfill the mental skills to be about it. Mm, So mine is super clear. Every day is an opportunity to create a living masterpiece. And yeah, and then for me, so then the double click underneath of it is like, well, what is a living masterpiece? So there's a double click under there. And which is, We don't need to get into it. But that is what helps me organize how I live. Yeah. And so. um,
0: That's like your your filter for everything, I guess. Yeah.
1: Every day means today Mm -hmm. is an opportunity, which is optimistic to create, not build, but to create. And it's actually, if I want to be technical, co-create with you together, Mm -hmm. a living masterpiece. And so, I don't know, it guides me there's love in there. There's thoughtfulness in there. There's so many different values that I would love to share with you. And we can do that at a later time, but like, that's what it's about, but that it's not the, the real conversation is for your community to be locked in on their personal philosophy, locked in on their purpose, share it with other people, and then develop the internal psychological skills to flat out be about it. That is what I've learned from best in the world, whether that be in, soccer, football, entrepreneurship, enterprise business. They are very clear and they front load the training of mental skills so they can be about it consistently.
0: That's pure gold. I am so excited to get this out to everybody. Gosh, that's so good. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. I promised you I'd get you out of here five minutes ago. So uh, Michael, where's the best place
1: for people to find you, follow you, learn more about you? You know, what's funny is i've got this like second narrative that's been running in my mind the whole time i haven't done an interview for almost like a year and i feel or, i don't know this, that's maybe six months and so i feel like there's so much shit i want to say and i know i talked 98 percent of the time i've got this filter <laughs> in the back of my mind going hey dude have a conversation but there's like i've just been pent up with so much i want to talk yeah. about so listen, I haven't, I haven't done an interview in a long time. And so I want to say thank you for allowing me to just narratively dump. And you asked (laughs) like 10 really good questions, if that, like, and so like, Hey, and it's because I love your mission. I love how you like, thank you for, for creating the space. And um, so how can folks find, uh, let's say social media is cool. You know, I, I have fun with it there. So at, Michael Gervais. And the last name is spelled G-E-R-V as in Victor, A-I-S as in Sam. So Michael Gervais. And then we're right under um, foot, uh, a redo for kind of our brand and our business. And so I don't know what you'll find right now at findingmastery.net. So we're taking our enterprise consulting services um and folding it into like a media company and so it's a really fun hybrid that we're creating right now so very cool um there'll be probably another handful of weeks before that launches but finding mastery.net is where you can find the podcast
0: awesome we'll link it all up and man it, like i said honor and a privilege to have you here uh i felt like we could we could have kept this conversation going all day we might have to do a part two that was
1: can we do a okay. part two where i learn more? Like. I didn't even get your kids' names. I don't know if you share them, but like, I would love to learn a little more there and then why you're on this mission. Yeah, Um, Because your mission, the way you described the mission when we first connected on email was like, oh, that's cool. And so um, I would like, I would like if you don't mind uh, to, to reconnect at some point.
0: Yeah, let's do it. I'll, I'll reach back out. We'll, uh, we'll get it on the books. But man, again, thank you so much. This is a gift. You're a busy dude. I take your time as a gift. I mean that when I say it. So thank I you so much. We'll stay in touch. I
1: appreciate you. Thank you. All
0: right, everybody. That's it. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, do me a huge favor and subscribe to the show or leave us a rating and review. We can't thank you enough for your support. Until next time, remember to love and lead from the front. See you.